Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 44. I am Rick, author of just the just-released Jesus Centered Daily 365-Day Devotional. It's an uh, exploration of what it would look like every day to udge our way a little closer to the heart of Jesus from of like 5,000 different trajectories. Uh, I guess it's more accurate to say like 365 different trajectories, but there's other trajectories underneath the 365. So maybe my 5,000 count is actually close to the truth, but it, it is a, uh, a wide collection of lots of different uh, entry paths into embracing and uh, appreciating the heart of Jesus for its beauty that's the Jesus Center Daily. You can go to my website, jesuscenterdaily.com for a free sampler. Just push a button and you get a 10-day sampler. You can watch my little intro video there or you can order it from there. You can also obviously just go directly to Amazon and order it there, the Jesus Center Daily. And if you already have a copy, um, I say this every episode, if you already have one and you're enjoying it and reading it every day, please do post a review on Amazon. It helps to get more attention, attention to the book as time goes on. So. This is the second episode in a new series I'm calling Kingdom Come. So the, the premise here is, well, what did Jesus really come to do? What was his mission? And for those of us who've grown up in the church, we know it's, it's basically a rescue mission. You know, he's come to rescue us so we can be with him in heaven. And of course, that's true. But um, that rescue is actually the, the epic fruit of a relationship. And the way I've been describing this is that when we get married, we move from being single to being a married couple. And the fruit of that marriage relationship then is children and building a home and all kinds of things. But your life definitely changes when you move from being single to getting married. And when we commit ourselves to Jesus, we move from a present and future reality that is really relationally apart from God to a present and future reality that is intimately connected to God through our relational attachment to Jesus. And that is the passion of God, restoration and relationship. But the mission of God has to do with planting the culture of the Trinity, which he called, which Jesus calls the kingdom of God in the broken, scarred, desolated garden that was once Eden. That's, that's us. We live in the post-Eden world, the post-Eden culture. And here Jesus is, is attempting to plant the seeds of the culture of the kingdom of God in the middle of our scarred garden. That's why he focused over and over again on bringing the kingdom of God, his own culture into our reality. And today we're going to explore in our second episode, um, something I'm calling bow down. <laughs> That'll make sense in a second. So if suddenly you, you learned, um, you heard the alarm going off somewhere in your house, your fire alarm, that piercing sound, and you thought, oh my gosh, I got to replace the batteries again. But actually, you then smelled smoke. And you realized, uh-oh, something happened in the kitchen. There's flames leaping out of our kitchen right now. You're in danger. Your house is going to burn down. And if you had just a few seconds to glance around to 
take whatever you could with you as you escaped the house, what would you take? Like, think about that right now, wherever the, the space is that you're listening to this podcast. Maybe you're in your car right now. And let's say your car caught on fire. <laughs> what besides yourself would you take from your car? That if you could grab something, what would you take? Um, or if you're in a room listening to this, or if you're in the kitchen making dinner, what would you grab if you only had a few seconds to grab that thing and, and, uh, and get out of the burning house with it? So whatever that is, whatever you would choose, that thing um, has a lot of value to you. Maybe it's intrinsic value, or maybe it's metaphoric value. Maybe you grab a, a, a photograph or a, a painting from your wall that you know can't be replaced. Or I know there's some, some gifts that people have given me that are quite rare. I, would, I have one sitting in, on my desk right in front of me right now that my good friend Michael Kiefer gave me when I left group. And uh, it's an extraordinary um, and very old page from a Bible. Uh, the, in this case, the stoning of Stephen. <laughs> and... Uh, Somehow Michael has a connection to antiquities, an antiquities dealer. And sometimes he gives me these extraordinary centuries old pages from documents and books that he knows I'll love. And this is one that's framed on my desk right now. I might grab that thing because that's irreplaceable. Um, and it holds great meaning and value to me. It touches my heart somehow. It, I don't want the remembrance of this great gift to leave me. And so so whatever we grab in that last moment, it has great value to us. We honor it. But would we stand in front of that item and bow down before it to honor it? Would we bow? Like right now, if I stood up and bowed before this gift that Michael gave me and spent 30 seconds bowing before it, what would I feel if I did that? Well, I actually did that earlier today just to see what it would feel like. And it was weird, as you might imagine. I mean, when we bow, we honor, right? But there's something about bowing that we, we don't want to do that to just anything, especially in our democratic culture. Um, we don't bow to very many things at all, at least even uh, in, if you take that literally physically bow before things. We kind of metaphorically bow before some things. I guess you could make that case. But but physically bowing before something, an object, for instance, something that's meaningful to us, while it's true it's meaningful to us, bowing before it seems to go just too far. That's just weird. Um, it's beyond honor when we do that. And yet, bowing in a kingdom is quite a common thing. If we had been, you know, you and I raised in a culture that was a kingdom culture from the beginning, not the kingdom of God, just that we had, instead of a, a president and a Congress, we had a royal family that, we, that, that sort of set our reality for us and was the locus of control and rulemaking and laws. If we grew up in a kingdom, then bowing would be, would be a much more common understanding for us because in a kingdom, you bow. You bow before the king. But we've grown up in a democratic society, in a democracy, where we do very little bowing. <laughs> and what would it, that experience feel like for us if bowing was a normal part of our everyday life? Um, because we were used to honoring people, 
that were worthy of our bow? What would that be like for us? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a thought that I've, uh, strangely enough, often pondered because Jesus talks so much about the kingdom of God that I realize I don't have a really good physical context for understanding what that's like. You know, at this time of year during Advent, there's quite a famous story about Jesus and bowing. I thought I would read that today. This is from Matthew chapter 2, and this is verses 1 through 12. This is when the Magi visit the Messiah. Now, think about the role bowing plays in this little story, and then we'll talk about it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be my, the shepherd for my people Israel. Well, then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when that star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Well, after this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. And there the story ends. And of course, they, God had warned them because Herod's real intention, sly as he was, was to have uh, these wise men do his dirty work for him and find out where this boy was. And then he intended to kill him. And because the wise men did not return to him, that, of course, led to the slaughter of the innocents, where Herod killed all the boys in Bethlehem, two years and younger. Um, and... Uh, so the, the wise men leave, but not before they bow before Jesus and worship him. And of course, Herod was intending not at all to bow and worship before Jesus. So you have two, two examples of leaders and kings here. One is refuses to bow down to the king before him. He just wants to kill the rival king. But the others can't wait to bow down before the king that is in front of them. Either way, this act of bowing is connected to something much bigger. It's a very big statement about uh, worship and kingship and living in a kingdom. <laughs> so uh, not only were these wise men bowing down before the Messiah, they had, a, had an accepted practice in their life in general that you bow down to one of greater honor. And so this bowing down before Jesus was not at all an unusual thing for them to do. So in your family growing up, was the culture in that family growing up more like a kingdom or more like a democracy? So more like a kingdom or a democracy. I think back to when I was a kid and 
I think some of you will be able to relate to this. Pretty much every family when I was growing up operated like a kingdom, not a democracy. The kids were not on equal plane and have an equal vote with the parents. The parents were definitely in charge and they were, they were supposed to be honored by the kids. Um, the the, the uh, expected relationship between kids and their parents back then was much more of a king uh, relationship, king or queen. Now, some families had, say, a mother who operated like a democracy and a father who operated like a kingdom, for instance. And then you have kingdoms in conflict. <laughs> you have political systems in conflict in the family. But today I would say it's much more common for families today to be organized around sort of a dem democracy mindset where kids get an opinion in the family that they didn't have when I was, when I was young. Um, and so I would say in general, my family and many families when I was growing up looked more like a kingdom than a democracy. And, but now we live in a cultural environment where our families are all uh, pretty much from the families that I'm in contact with pretty much like democracies. There's some obvious, uh, you know, uh, exceptions to that, but I think in general, that's true. So what's interesting about this is, as I mentioned before, Jesus is always talking almost incessantly about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. In the gospel of Matthew alone, there's 37 references to the kingdom of God. In the four gospels, there's 86 references to the kingdom of God. Um, I, I heard one theologian uh, who I've, I forget his name now, but I remember what he said. He said, the New Testament of the Bible is an account of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. The New Testament is. And the Old Testament of the Bible is like the book of the coming kingdom of God. I love that description. The New Testament describes what life looks like in the kingdom of God through the, through the modeling and example and teaching of Jesus. And the Old Testament is calling us forward to the coming kingdom of God. I thought it'd be interesting for us to get a little peek inside the, uh, the, what it would look like to grow up in a royal family, in a kingdom where there is a royal family. And what would it be like to grow up inside that royal family? What would you know about living in a kingdom that someone who grew up in a democracy wouldn't know? So I thought we could listen to, this is a few years old now, but this is a report on Good Morning America um, about life inside um, the royal family. And I thought we could listen to this just to get a little taste of, of the difference of what it would feel like to grow up in a kingdom that had a queen and at one time had a king, but everything is, the, the culture is sort of framed by uh, a kingdom. So let's listen to this report from a few years ago from Good Morning America. Look inside the royal family. The new Vanity Fair has the queen on the cover. We showed it to you before. It reveals more about day-to-day -day life for Kate, Will, George, and Charlotte. Everything from school runs to play dates. But now the big question is, is another royal sibling coming soon? ABC's Lama Hassan has it all from Buckingham Palace this morning. Good morning to you, Lama. Yeah, good morning to you guys. That is a very good question. And here's another one. What's royal life like for the Cambridges behind closed doors? Well, according to this Vanity Fair article, it's a warm and welcoming family home with Kate doing the cooking, William and Kate taking turns at bath time and reading to George and Charlotte. So in a nutshell, they're just like us. Well, kind of. They still have a few people here and there helping them out when they want to. 
While William and Kate are busy juggling their charitable projects and increasing their royal responsibilities, it's family first. Prince George and Princess Charlotte are the priority. George keeping his parents on their toes running around. Little sister Charlotte just taking her first steps. The kids are everything and um, they're amazing parents raising Charlotte and George in extraordinary circumstances. But as ordinary little children is no easy feat. Like father, like son, we're now learning that Prince George is being introduced to the family pastime. It's only a matter of time before George hits the polo pitch like his daddy and uncle Harry. He enjoyed his first pony ride, I think just after his second birthday. And that absolutely delights William because of course he was on a horse from a young age. While George has been attending the local Montessori school near their country home three days a week, William and Kate are now searching for his next school, likely in London. George will probably follow William to Weatherby Prep School. It's a very prestigious, very good school around the corner from Kensington Palace and where William and Harry were very happy. Making sure that the kids can have a normal childhood away from the spotlight, slowly introducing George and Charlotte to their royal life ahead. Well, I think you can expect William and Kate to mirror Diana in that respect of hands-on parenting. As soon as William and Kate were back from India and Bhutan, was Kate on that school run on that Monday morning doing the thing that every other mother does. So the burning question, will there be a baby Cambridge number three? I think there will be a third child, absolutely. Watch this space and to expect probably some baby news next year. All right, there you have a little report on what life is like growing up as a little kid in a royal family. And um, I w only wish you could see some of the images that played against the backdrop of that report of these little kids surrounded by people in very elaborate uh, uniforms and very elaborate dresses and um, all the kinds of uh, trappings that go with growing up in a royal family, but also the expectations that grow up with that, that, that you don't have a lot of freedom because the, 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 uh, in a kingdom, the king decides and the royals decide what your life is going to be like. There's very little flexibility. That's why there's been uh, scandals of late with Harry and, and his new bride as they have literally left the family to, to create some flexibility and space outside of a kingdom. <laughs> they moved to Canada to have that, that, uh, that kind of freedom. They, they had to get out of the kingdom to experience the kind of freedom they want. And it kind of illustrates something, I think, and if you, if you think about the differences between a democracy and a kingdom, um, is a kingdom a better system of government than a democracy? Or is it the other way around? And I, I think my, my hunch is, you know, again, going back to how often Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. And we know, obviously, that the, the, the system of influence and rule uh, that the Trinity has is based on a kingdom with a king. And a kingdom, I think, is a much better arrangement for us as long as the king is good and perfect. <laughs> if the king is not good and perfect or the opposite end of the spectrum, if they're bad and evil, um, then your life can be miserable. I mean, it, that, then that's a totalitarian situation um, where your, your freedom and your very life is always at risk. But if you live in a kingdom with a good and perfect king, it probably can't get better than that because there's as much as democracy as the, is the best system of government for a broken world, 
because there's checks and balances against the sinful brokenness of who we are. Um, but that is, in fact, only the best we can do in a broken world because a kingdom whose king is, is, the, is the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, would clearly be a, a, uh, a much more fruitful and life-giving arrangement. So Jesus has come to bring a kingdom, and he's come to bring a king, kingdom whose king is good and perfect, and he wants, us, wants to invite us into a kingdom kind of life in the end. And because we have no real conception of what that kingdom life is like, he has to plant seeds about it. If you think about what happened back in the Garden of Eden, um, there was kingdom life before the fall. And if you think about what Adam and Eve did, they listened to the serpent who basically said to them, this is not a very good system because you live in a kingdom with a king who has a bad heart. He's holding out on you. He knows that your life could be so much better and you could have more authority over your own life and you'd have the freedom you really deserve if you just threw over the king and created your own democracy where everyone has an equal vote. And in the end, Adam and Eve took that bait, right? And everything fell down. The, the, the rich and generous and kind and loving environment that they lived in was now destroyed in shambles around them. And they got the democracy they wanted. And we've been at war with each other ever since, <laughs> ever since that moment, just trying to survive under a system of government that tries to lessen the damage. But actually, it's that kingdom living where we could walk in the cool of the evening with Jesus, where the, the tension of the brokenness that we've inherited wasn't there. And so Jesus is, has come to replant that new reality, that kingdom reality in our own culture. He's not only an ambassador of that kingdom, but he's the embodiment of it. He says, if we pay attention to him in his heart, if we pay attention to him, we will understand how the kingdom of God works just by paying attention to him. And not only how it works, but what it values, what, what practices it, it uh, believes in, and what goals it has, and, and again, what, what it values the most. So it's hard for us to understand what that really means unless we slow down and pay attention to the many, many times Jesus tried to unveil what that kingdom looked like. So let's do that here from Matthew chapter 13. We're just going to look at a little snippet. This is one of many, many, many times where Jesus attempted to plant seeds about what the kingdom of God actually looks like, feels like, values. How does it operate? If you were in it right now, what would it feel like? Um, so many times he's trying to unveil this. So we're going to read a, a little parable from Matthew 13 called the parable of the mustard seed. And it's one in a series of stories that he's telling to try to specifically help his followers understand how things work in the kingdom of God. So, as I read this little uh, parable, it's very short, just two verses long. I want you to think about what the cultural value or truth that Jesus is trying to convey. What is the cultural value or truth he's trying to convey in this story? And then think about how is that cultural value or truth 
similar to or different from the culture that you live in right now. So think about the cultural value of truth Jesus is trying to convey in this little parable to understand the value system of the kingdom of God. And then how is that similar to or different from the culture you live in now? So here's the parable of the mustard seed from Matthew 13, verses 31 to 32. If you're not driving and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to Matthew 13 and just page down, you'll see this little parable. Here it is, starting in verse 31. Here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. Let me read it one more time. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches. So, uh, here's our question. What is the cultural value of the kingdom of God or the truth about the kingdom of God Jesus is trying to convey here? On the surface, what we see is a small thing, um, even the smallest of things, um, has in its nature the ability to become the largest of things. Uh, the largest of all garden plants. In fact, this, this particular seed can grow into a tree and birds can come and make nests in its branches. He's trying to say this, this, this dichotomy that I'm describing, this upending truth is really true about the kingdom of God. Small things can become really big things, so big that people can make their whole life inside that big thing that starts from the small thing. The thing that immediately strikes me connects to another parable that I think um, these two parables are connected, but maybe you've never heard them connected before. And that is the parable of the 99 sheep and the one sheep. In that parable, Jesus talks about what, what kind of shepherd who has 100 sheep wouldn't leave the 99 sheep who are safely grazing on a field and go off to find the one sheep who's gotten lost and caught in the brambles. What good shepherd wouldn't go off to find his lost sheep and rescue that sheep and bring it back to the herd? So in, in that parable, the 99 and the one, I've talked often about this parable on the podcast. It's a reminder that in the kingdom of God, the one person, the small seed, is of inestimable value that one sheep is, is so valuable that Jesus will leave the safe sheep on the side of the hill and go off to rescue that one because one sheep, one person, one heart, um, that one person, even though it seems small in the whole space of hundreds of millions, billions of people in the world, that one small seed, that one person can grow up if it's planted well and grow up into the largest of trees. And, and those that nurture their life off of that one person can come and make nest, <laughs> metaphorically, in the branches of that tree. Life and home and sustenance and nurturing can all be produced by the, that one small seed of a person. In the kingdom of God does not make decisions and does not see the world in terms of crowds. 
when it looks out on when Jesus looks out on a crowded street, he does not see the aggregate crowd. He sees individuals. This is why, over and over again, Jesus notices the unnoticed. The woman who puts her two mites, her two little pennies, into the offering pot in the temple, and no one is paying attention to her except for Jesus. Because her small gift, that small little thing she puts in the pot, Jesus says, is the biggest donation of the day by far. Because her small gift represents all of her heart, all of her resources, all of her ability to live. It represents all of that when she gives it. So he says, this small thing she gives is the biggest thing. Or the woman who touches the hem of his garment, who has had an issue of blood for many years and has been unable to, to get better. And she spent all of her money trying with doctors trying to get better and she can't. And desperate, she decides to sneak up to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment and then sneak back away. And there's really no way that he would ever feel the touch of her fingers on the hem of his garment. And yet he does. He senses power has gone out of him and he stops and he says, who touched me? And his disciples, of course, say, look at the crowd, Jesus, you're surrounded by a crowd. But Jesus isn't looking at the crowd. He's looking for the one, the one woman who, who uh, risked to approach and touch him in a spirit of faith and desperation. He's looking for that one woman. And he doesn't want just that woman to be healed. And she is healed by just touching him. He wants her to be healed on another level, as we talked about before. The shame and marginalization she's experienced her whole life. He wants um, the fact of her cleansing and her healing and her release from shame to be lived out in the crowd. So the whole crowd knows she's restored and that Jesus himself has restored her so that she'll be invited back into community because he cares about the one in the middle of the crowd. In the kingdom of God, small things are seen for their potential, and their potential seems epic, grandiose. And gang, the truth is this is the way Jesus sees you and your life. It really doesn't matter what perspective you bring to your own life, what discouragement you might have today. I mean, it does matter. Of course, it matters to Jesus that you are discouraged or your hope is struggling in the midst of everything that we've gone through over this year or that you're wondering what your future will be like. Of course, all those things matter. But in his perspective, you are that mustard seed. You are the thing that if, if he plants it in the ground and nurtures it, it can grow up into this huge tree that gives life and nurture and meaning to so many. That's the potential that he sees in you. He does not look at you like a, 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 failed, a failed seed just because you're small. In fact, it's the opposite. He sees in your little tiny seed the, the potential to grow into this enormous tree, the, the largest tree in the garden, the largest plant in the garden, and that others can come and nest in your branches all from that tiny little seed. But the seed does have to be planted. And in this kind of relationship, it's all invitational. Jesus will not grab you 
and take you and plant you no matter whether you want to be or not. What he does is say, I am in this, in the context of this little parable, I am the master gardener. Will you offer to me the seed of yourself and allow me to plant you and nurture you and grow you into the tree that I see in you right now? Will you offer yourself to me? We only do that when we're convinced of the heart, the good heart of the master gardener. If you're convinced that he can do it, that he really is a master gardener, and that his heart is utterly trustworthy, then it's a decision we make to give ourselves over to the king of the kingdom, the master gardener, to allow ourselves to reclaim what Adam and Eve once knew intrinsically. We can trust him. I can give my everything to him. I have, no, I have doubts, yes, but I have no doubts about his heart. Therefore, I will give myself over to him. Even if it's painful to do it, I will take my little seed, that is my own soul, and haltingly, doubtfully, <laughs> offer it to him anyway with open hands. Here, Jesus, take me. Replant me. Please bring growth. If I am meant to be a tree, the largest in the garden, please, please nurture me into that. Um, all of that is our gift of worship to Jesus. And whenever anyone showed up in front of Jesus and offered him their little seed, the seed of themselves, he was blown away. He called that faith. That was his version. That was his explanation for what faith and belief really were. When someone offered the seed of their whole life to him and said, here, take it, plant it, do what you will with it, Jesus was amazed. He called this great faith. And great faith simply means, I know your heart, and I'm convinced of what you can do. Therefore, I'm handing over what is most valuable to me, the only thing I have really, my little seed, to you. That is how the kingdom of God operates. And that is the kingdom Jesus is trying to plant in our culture and in our life. If, you, if you're in a place right now, you're not driving and you can do this, why don't you just stand up if you're not already standing? And let's just close by bowing for just a few moments um, in silent prayer. Just bow and say to Jesus, whatever you want to, as you bow before him, just tell him whatever's on your mind right now, what you think of him, what your experience of his heart is, or what you're longing for. Just bow before him, do it physically. It's amazing how when you do something physically, it translates in a deeper spiritual level for us. So I just invite you to stand up right now as you're listening, bow down for a few seconds, and then I'll close. Ready? Let's do it together. Let's bow. Like the Magi first did, Jesus, when we show up and see you and see your beauty, we bow. We bow down before you and we bring you gifts, the best gifts we can think of to give. And really, the, the only gift that really matters is we bring you ourselves. 
we bow down and bring you the gift of who we are and we offer it up to you. Thank you, Jesus. Plant us, nurture us, grow us into a tree that birds can nest in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Again, this is uh, season five, episode 44 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. If you want to find links to the things I've talked about today, you can go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Just look for season five, episode 44, and uh, click away. Also, if you've never joined the pigs, it's a private Facebook page um, that uh, is for this community of people that listen to this podcast and want to be in connection with each other. And it's a place to ask questions and to encourage one another and to offer insights into things and uh, offer up problems and challenges that we have in our own journeys with Jesus. So if you haven't joined the pigs, it's a private Facebook page. All you have to do is click on the link on paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com season five episode 44 just find that link for the pigs page and you'll be uh you'll you'll submit your invitation to be invited in and and i'll get you in there and uh, you can enjoy community with others who listen to this podcast again this is paying ridiculous attention to jesus it's a podcast from ricklawrence.com you can subscribe on google play or itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you again 